how firm a foundation we find in the Word. And now we go into the Word together. Congratulations to the family with this precious little Ezekiel dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ today. We can go on dedicating ourselves to Him. You don't have to have parents to bring you anymore. You can dedicate yourself to Him every day. Let's pray. Oh God, how firm a foundation we find in the Word. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. As we open Holy Scripture now, may the mighty third person of the Godhead who inspired these stories long ago and today's teaching inspire us to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm a pilgrim and I'm a stranger I can tarry, I can tarry but a night If the public will countenance such a quack pretender in his efforts to excite the minds of ignorant, superstitious people they, as well as he should bear the responsibility. The Republican Herald. We must speak out, and we will. These men are the worst enemies of God. The Olive Branch. The Second Advent delusion has proved the greatest calamity that has befallen us since our organization. General Convention of Baptists, 1846. When I look back to the period when we began to publish the news of a coming Savior. I think it the happiest time of my life. The glorious appearing of Christ is my only hope. To this I cling. William Miller On the 22nd of October in 1844, as tradition has it, a group of people stood or sat expectantly from morning to night on a large rock ledge in a place then called Lowhampton, New York. Nearby in the front room of a farmhouse, a 62-year-old itinerant Baptist preacher sat reading a Bible and praying. These people, and perhaps hundreds of thousands more, from Portland, Maine to St. Louis to Washington, D.C., were called Millerites. Some had sold or given away all their possessions in the preceding days. Others had left crops standing in the field. They had eaten what they thought was their last meal on earth. They and William Miller, the man in the farmhouse, were waiting quietly for the end of the world. So the fair question to ask is, the spiritual children of William Miller, is this. How can a 167-year-old event still retain its cutting edge in the apocalyptic community? They were right about the prophetic time marker of Daniel 8.14. Scholars have 
heaped up books affirming the correctness of that conclusion. Obviously wrong about the event. Christ did not come. Something else happened at that prophetic time marker. So, as the descendants, as it were, of William Miller, how do we keep a cutting edge on this 167-year-old event? Before you're too hard on that teaching, I need to ask the question this way. How do we keep the cutting edge? How do we retain the cutting edge on an event 2,000 years ago atop a mountain called Calvary? How does a believing community keep that alive? It's the same question. It's the same challenge. Let's not be too hard on either event. How do we keep alive the last red-letter words? If you have a red-letter Bible, the last red-letter words in the Bible spoken by Christ at the end of the apocalypse, surely I am coming soon. So how are we going to keep that one alive 2,000 years later? Don't be too hard on this Bible teaching that says before he returns the second time, there will be a celestial pre-advent convening Judgment. Daniel 8.14 still speaks its truth. Ron Knott and producer Mohan, who crafted this, this DVD entitled The Midnight Cry, William Miller and the End of the World, they borrowed that title from a parable Jesus told. You know the parable of the ten virgins. And in the middle of the parable, Jesus speaks these words in Matthew chapter 25, Verse 5, but while the bridegroom, Christ is the bridegroom, but while the bridegroom was delayed, it's a parable, Jesus is very clear, a parable about the second coming, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. We have all slept. How do we live with this delay? 167 years after October 22, 1844, right now, 167 years to the second, here we are. Perhaps it's no coincidence at all that we come in the, in the fourth gospel. We come to a series of Jesus' most penetrating statements about the judgment, and we happen to come to them on this October 22. I want to examine those statements that, be, that are prefaced by a stunning miracle. Open your Bible. The fourth gospel. The gospel of John. Fly through one miracle... And then two stunning statements. John chapter 4. You didn't bring a Bible. You need to track this miracle. If it were just the miracle, it would be worth it all, just for, for uh, this narrative. John chapter 5. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. You didn't bring a Bible. It's page 717 in that pew Bible. Unforgettable miracle here in John 5. But it's followed by two stunning statements about the judgment. And it's those statements that I want to get to as fast as we can. So let's go. John chapter 5, verse 1, New King James Version. After this, I'll put the words on the screen for you. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's code language in John. John will repeat that phrase. You know why? Because only John tells us that Jesus repeatedly went up to Jerusalem. All the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, all say at the end he went up once. John says, no, again and again he went up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is where, the, Jerusalem is where Calvary will climax. 
So we already have Calvary hinted at in this story. Calvary embedded in every narrative in the Gospel of John. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Some suggest it means house of mercy. And it had five porches or porticos. I've stood, I've actually stood on the ledge in Jerusalem and it's way down because the layers over the centuries have accumulated as they've torn down, rebuilt, torn down and rebuilt. There are actually two pools for the pool of Bethesda, the length of a football field. So we're not talking about two little wading pools here, a massive two pools, 20 feet deep, five porticos, which means that there are porches on all four sides and then a portico or a porch in the middle, and archaeologists are assuming that meant the separation of genders, two pools for each. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, verse 2, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind. The ancients believed to heal a blind man is the pinnacle of divine intervention. Lame. They felt the same about the lame. Those two, those two physical impairments were considered the unachievable in terms of healing. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Somehow it got started in the folklore of that holy city that on certain occasions, unpredictable, there would come a supercharging of the waters as it were. And if you stepped into those waters, you'd be healed. In fact, the, the folklore was the first person into the water, when an angel, that was the belief, an angel reached down and with his celestial hand, he just stirred the ripplings, the first person in is healed. It doesn't take a whole lot of pondering to realize that with that premise, you can understand it would always be those with the brute physical strength. Usually the least of the sick, least sick, who would be in the water first. Because if you're emaciated physically, medically, there is no way you can drag your, your frame, those skin and bones, to that water. Unless, of course, you had a family who kept vigil with you, some friend who would hurry you to the water's edge. Verse 5. So there they lie by the hundreds packed around those two pools. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. I feel like life has ended if I have a cold for three days. I am miserable to everybody around me. But some of you know, some of you know the meaning of chronic suffering. Pain that never goes away. It just is with you. Some of you know. 38 years. Skin and bones. That's where he's laying. Right there. Too far. Now a certain man, verse 5, was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, Desire of Ages says, by the way, that when Jesus stepped into that pool of Bethesda, two pools, really, he, he inquired, who's been here the longest? Who is here the longest? Jesus purposely picked out what the Desire of Ages says is the worst case, just hopeless. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, see, and knew 
He checked it out and knew that the man had already been in that condition for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? What would happen if Jesus stood in front of you and me today? And he looked into our faces and he asked that question very privately, of course, to you so that nobody else would hear it but you. If he looked into your face and he said, hey, girl, hey, boy, do you want to be made well? If Jesus stood in front of me today and he said, Dwight, I can heal you. I can heal you right now. Nobody else knows what you're crippled over. I know I can heal you right now. What would I ask him to do? If he asked me, do you want to be made well? Yes, please. So Jesus leans over this emaciated, protruding, cheek-boned, sunken-eyed countenance. When he leans over, he blocks the noonday sun, and that's why the bloodshot eyes open and they can see a stranger staring down at him, backlighted by the glory of the afternoon. Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered in verse 7, Sir, I have no man. I tell you what, there's a whole sermon. Oh, someday somebody's got to preach it. I have no one. I have no one. I have nobody in this dormitory. I have nobody on this campus. I have nobody in this community. I have no man. I have no woman. I have nobody who cares for me. Once in a while, I get an email from a worshiper who has worshipped here for months. And I tell you what, it just makes my heart weep as that person describes coming here Sabbath after Sabbath. And there's nobody, nobody that shows an interest in her. Nobody that notices he's even sitting in that pew. Oh, I love that, uh, I love that uh, Joni Bell testimony a moment ago. I'm talking to the family here at, at, at the Pioneer Memorial Church. Come on, go to that website. Volunteer to become a family away from family, a home away from home. We just had our five over last Sabbath, had a glorious Sabbath together. Come on, that's what it's about. We don't want anybody leaving Andrews University and saying, you know what, I had nobody the whole four years and nobody cared about me. Ah, what heartache. I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. The stronger, obviously, are the ones who get healed. Jesus said to him, there must have been something in that voice. There must have been something even in that backlighted face that mirrors compassion and hope. Jesus says to that man as he stoops over him, I'm telling you, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Something in the heart of that 38-year sick man leaps. He doesn't know who's speaking to him, but there's an ounce of faith, just a mustard seed, and he jumps to his feet. Hallelujah. He jumps to his feet. And immediately, the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. Praise God. And John inserts the word immediately because he wants high contrast between 38 years and immediately. For the last four chapters, John has been talking water, water, water. In chapter 2, the, the uh, water pots of purification in the wedding of Cana. In chapter 3, unless you're born of water. In chapter 4, the, the, the well of Jacob's well in Samaria. And now in chapter 5, water again. 
because there was great ritual significance attached to the meaning of water. And John is saying, I want to tell you something. All the water in the world can't save you. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Boom, he seals it by John 5. We have heard a joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the glad news all around. Jesus saves. That's the point of this miracle. Salvation is in Christ. Ah. Oh, we left off a sentence. Uh, we left off a sentence in verse 9, didn't we? And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And now John purposely, who has withheld this phrase from the beginning of his narrative, for, for a moment pregnant with drama... Now John inserts it, because he could have said at the beginning of the narrative, on the Sabbath, Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda, and he found a sick man. No, not a word about what day of the week it is. Only now, the end of verse 9, how does it read? And that day was the Sabbath day. And it was the Sabbath day. And John, by that inclusion, at the end of the healing, is telling all his readers... The young Messiah has intentionally chosen not to do the healing on Tuesday, not to do it on Monday, not to do it on Sunday. He chose to do it today, and he found the worst pathetic case around that pool, and he says, I'll do it on this one so that it will be seen. He's thrown down the gauntlet, the young Messiah has. He's challenging the rabbinical regulations that have been heaped around the Sabbath to protect it. 39 prohibitions. They may have been well intended at the beginning to preserve the sanctity of the seventh-day Sabbath, but they are now strangulating the gift of God. And the Lord of the Sabbath will not stand for it. He throws the gauntlet down, and the challenge is on. It was the Sabbath. And then, then verse 10, the Jews. Now remember, come on, come on. Whenever John talks about the Jews, he's not talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about the ecclesiastical, the religious hierarchy. He means the, the leaders. So we could read this way. Verse 10, the leaders of the religion, therefore said to the healed man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, arguably, this is the most well-known sufferer in the city of Jerusalem. For 38 years, even the grown-up children know, the old man has been lying there 38 years, and he's never gotten healed. He's the most well-known sufferer. So when he goes walking through, when he goes walking through Jerusalem, they know instantly who it is. Isn't that amazing? Not, a, not even a quiet little, wow. Praise God. Can you, hey, guys, can, can you believe this? High five. Not a word about it. Not a word about thank God Almighty. The word is because when you're strangulated by legalism, all you can think of is exalting creed over need. It's always creed over need. Jesus comes along and says, no, it's the other way around. It's need over creed. Not a word about thank God for what just took place. Instead, can't. What is the problem with you? Don't you know this is a Sabbath? You're carrying your bed. And the poor man. Ah, the poor man. Verse 11. 
And why are you talking to me? And what are you talking to me for? That's what he's saying in verse 11. Don't talk to me. He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, hey, who is this man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Do you think they need a little, a little primer in healers that might be in Jerusalem today? They know exactly who did it. Who else could do this? 38 years and not a doctor in sight who's been able to help this man. And somebody walks in and with one command, 38 years, out the window. They know who did it. They need to accumulate evidence for charges. Who, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But, verse 13, the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. It's crowded. It's Sabbath. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, see... You've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews, Hey, here he is, right here. Here it is. Here's the guy who did it, right here. It was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father and I have been working until now. And I have been working. Oh, talking about double jeopardy. You shouldn't, talk to, you shouldn't have talked about God as your father because, boom, verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Double jeopardy, and we got you on both counts. What do you are? What do you do? You think you're the one that invented the Sabbath, huh? You think you're related to God? The die is cast. And now, after that stunning miracle, here it comes. Desire of Ages says, describes how Jesus is actually being arraigned before the Supreme Court of the land. He's standing now before the Sanhedrin. 71 members. He stands before them to answer for his violation of the day he created. And then two stunning words about judgment. Nothing about the Sabbath, two stunning words about judgment. Grab your study guide. Let's go. I want you to write both these words down. When the both of the words are out, we're home. Thank you, ushers. Let's go. Hold your hand up. If you didn't get a study guide when you came in, up in the balcony, hold your hand up. We want to make sure you have a study guide. You're sitting in overflow today. Hold your hand up. You're going to want this study guide, please. Daniel 8, 14's commencement 167 years ago. What's that have to do with John 5? Let's find out. Hold your hand up as they come. And those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. I want to get you that same study guide. I'm going to give you a website. Put it on the screen right now. There you see it on your television screen. Computer screen, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the series, The Last Word. It's a series on the fourth gospel. Can't believe it, but this is part eight. Wow, time is flying by. This is part eight. You're looking for the teaching entitled, Here Comes the Judge. All right, here comes the judge. Keep your hand up there in the back. They're coming to you. Here comes the judge. When you see that teaching, it says study guide underneath it. You click on and you will have it. Let's go. Two stunning words about the judgment that Jesus gives in the context of this Sabbath day miracle. But before we go to those two, two stunning words, just a little introductory paragraph from New Testament scholar Craig Keener. I want you to catch this because it's significant. Notice how pivotal the judgment theme is in the Gospel of John, in the fourth Gospel. You have it there in your study guide? Let's go. Keener writing, judgment appears as a central. Would you write it down, please? Judgment appears as a central motif or theme. Judgment is a central theme in this gospel, the fourth gospel. Now, I'm, I'm giving 
evidence there for you because you can do your homework on this. Keener's talking about the Greek noun krisis, from whence comes, by the way, the, our word crisis. It can mean judgment or it can mean condemnation. And then he lists 11 verses where that word appears in the fourth gospel. Then he says, oh, by the way, let me tell you about the verb krino, which means to judge or to condemn. There are 14 verses. 15 verses. Uh, no, 25, rather. 25 verses throughout the gospel. What's Keener's point? Keep reading. Jesus' present mission is not judgment, but the world apart from him stands under judgment. Jesus will judge in the end, and the way people respond to him in the present determines their destiny. Those who do not embrace him face eternal judgment, end quote. What's the point, Dwight? The point is simple. Judgment is a central theme in the fourth gospel. So here they are now. We've, we've just had the miracle narrative. Now come two stunning words about the judgment. Would you write them down, please? Stunning word about end time judgment. Stunning word one. It's a word about the judge. Make sure it's a capital J. It's a word about the judge. Look, this is a lengthy defense that Jesus makes before the Supreme Court. We're not going to read the entire defense. You may. We're going to spot check it. Drop down to verse 22. Jesus is now giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. For, this is verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. She who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All right? Would you jot it down, please? Jesus is saying, hey, 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 hey. Because I am the Son of God, I am the judge. Write that down. That's what he's saying. I am the Son of God. I am the judge. All right? But notice, he has a little bit more to say. Drop down to uh, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Verse 27. And the Father has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Write it down this time. Jesus is saying, because I'm the Son of Man... I am the judge. Well, which is it? You said you're the son of God and you're the judge, or you're the son of man and you're the judge. No, it's because I'm both that I'm the judge. It's because I am intimately bound up with the human race, intimately bound up with Almighty God, that I am the only one in the universe who can function as judge of the human race. I am the judge. Wow. You think, about, you think about the people sitting in that Supreme Court who are the judges of the land. There might have been a bit of unnerving realization. What if he is? What if he is the judge? Then the Supreme Court will one day stand before him. That's what. Whoa. You know, we don't talk very, we don't talk very often about Jesus as judge, do we? No, we love the picture of Jesus as the defense attorney, the advocate. That's why we love 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Let's put that on the screen. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, a defending attorney. We have the defender with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Ah, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And by the way, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole wide world. Yeah, we love that picture of Jesus. But Jesus as judge, are you serious? He's the judge? 
Holy Scripture is replete with evidence that Christ is the judge. I'm going to run these by you. Keep your pen moving. You you won't even have to look up. I'll just read it out loud to you and scribble the words down. Let's go to Jesus' last parable that he told before his crucifixion. The king coming, separating the sheep and the goats. Here we go. When the Son of Man comes in his glory as the king, he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now watch this. All the nations of the world will be gathered before him, and he will separate them. Right in the word separate. That is an act of judgment, because he's determining who's going to get saved and who's going to be lost. He will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All right, that's Matthew 25. Paul, the mighty apostle, comes along in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Jot this down. For we must all appear before the... Before the what? The judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, what is due us for the things done, whether good or bad. Next line. Paul, again... Before the creme de la creme of the intelligentsia and the mighty citadel of the Areopagus in Athens, Paul thunders to these pagan philosophers, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, man, whom he has ordained. Who is this man? Paul goes on, oh, God has given assurance of this to all by raising him, the man, from the dead. Clearly, Christ is the one who will judge the entire world. God has set a date. Daniel 8.14 defines that date. The prophetic marker was absolutely correct with William Miller and those around him. Nothing has changed. The marker was correct. God has set a date. Jesus himself. Let's look at the words of Jesus again. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And has given him authority to execute judgment. No question, the Bible teaching is that Christ is the judge. In fact, a century ago, let let, let me put these words on the screen for you. You, You'll have to fill them in. From his high position, Christ, the King of glory, the majesty of heaven, saw the condition of men and women here on earth. He pitied human beings in their weakness and sinfulness. And he came to this earth to reveal what God is to us. Christ humbled himself to stand at the head of humanity to meet the temptations and endure the trials that we must meet and endure. And Christ has been made our judge. The Father is not the judge. The angels are not. He who took humanity upon himself and in this world lived a perfect life is to judge us. Final line. He only, write that word in, only. He only can be our judge. Only one. You can't judge me, by the way. You can't judge me. I can't judge you either. Nobody can judge us except the one who was here. You know what that means, don't you? Since the the onset of the pre-advent judgment, which Daniel 8.14 predicts, since October 22, 1844, the judgment has been placed in the incarnate hands of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He is the judge. Here comes the judge. It is he. Stunning word. Stunning revelation. How did Keener put it? Let's put it up on the screen. Keener, Jesus will judge in the end. And the way people respond to him in the present determines their destiny. Those who do not embrace him face eternal judgment. And because of that, ladies and gentlemen, we need to ponder right now. I'm going to give you the second word, then I'm through. The second stunning word about the judgment. Don't blow this one off. This one is going to be, this will catch you by surprise. 
Stunning word number two about the judgment. Jot it down. What is it? It's about the judged. Not the capital J now. No, no, little J, because that's you and me. The word that Christ speaks is about the judge. Now, before we get to that word, I want to read what he said there in verse 24. Okay, so you drop down a little lower in chapter 5. Most assuredly, remember when when, uh, the New King James uses those words, most assuredly, assuredly, or very truly, or truly, truly, or verily, verily, whatever your translation. That's John's device. 25 times in the fourth gospel, John will put a double amen. Amen, amen. Whenever John inserts a double amen, because Jesus didn't say amen, amen. John inserts amen, amen. Whenever John inserts amen, amen, it's a red flag saying, yo, slow down. Slow, reader, slow down. Speed limit is low here. Low, slower, slower. You've got to see what you're driving through. Amen, amen. I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. I told you, Dwight. I knew there was a verse. Thank you for finding it for me. I knew there was a verse that says when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you do not pass into the judgment. He just said it right there from his lips. Hey, hold on, hold on. Come on, not so fast. Now we need to remember that the word for judgment, crisis, can be translated either judgment or condemnation. And in fact, it's the translator's call, which is why in verse 29, the translators all say, oh, no, 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 this means condemnation here. Same word, but in verse 29, it's translated condemnation. Well, then how can you put it, how can you say that nobody comes into the judgment? Well, we just looked at all these texts that say you come to the judgment. Either Jesus is lying about the other texts, Or he has not given us a get-out-of-judgment-free card when you pass go. Something's here. In fact, look at this. Hebrews chapter 10. Christ himself inspired these words. The Lord will judge whom? His people. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that uh, that that God's people don't pass into judgment. No, 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 no. The Bible teaches the Lord will judge his people. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at where? The house of God. It begins with God's people. So that can't mean, it can't mean that if you believe in him, you don't pass into the judgment. Ah, that means we have to use the other translation. Does it make sense the other way? Amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Oh, that works. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Oh, it works. So, here's the question. What is the word that Christ would speak to us, this second stunning word that Christ would speak to us who live in the hour of his judgment? Ever heard of Revelation 14, verse 7? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. You've read those words before. Just before the return of Christ, there is a judgment. So what word would Christ speak to us? Could it be the same word he spoke to the healed man from the pool of Bethesda? Drop back to verse 14. Go back to verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found the healed man in the temple. And he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Would you scribble this down, please? In the Greek, it literally reads, do not go on sinning. Do not go on sinning. 
Apparently the man's lifestyle. Something he was doing precipitated his illness. Some sin the man was committing was causing and exacerbating his sickness. Desire of Ages. Let me put the words on the screen for you. His disease was in a great degree the result of his own sin and was looked upon as a judgment from God. I know that there are some Christians today who believe that AIDS is a judgment from God. Well, serves you right. I hope you never, I hope you never subscribe to that kind of warped thinking. But people around the pool were saying, Ha! He did it. He's got it now. The disease, his disease was in a great degree the result of his own sin and was looked upon as a judgment from God, alone and friendless, feeling that he was shut out from God's mercy. The sufferer passed along, passed long years of, mer- of misery. Was it an STD? Could have been. Sexually transmitted disease? Could have been. Nobody says. Nobody says. All Jesus says is, stop it now. Stop it now. And so living as we are, you and I in the hour of his judgment, I wonder, would there be anything in your life, would there be anything in my life that Jesus would quietly command us to cease and desist? Stop it. Stop it now. This is the judgment. I am coming soon. You can no longer keep laughing this off. You can no longer keep shrugging this away. I am coming soon. Don't go on sinning any longer. Wow. I wonder what sin that would be that he would be speaking to you about and me about. Would it, be this, would, would it be from the sexual realm? Would it be in the arena of diet? Would it be under the category of amusing myself, entertainment? What would Jesus say? Hey, 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 boy, listen to me. Stop this. Stop it now, or something worse will come upon you. And what could be worse than losing your soul over that which you refuse to let go? Stop it. Don't go on doing that any longer. What does he speak of? Would it be a spirit of judging, of criticizing? Would it be a spirit of mercilessness? Mercilessness for those who are in chronic pain? A a cold heart for those who are in chronic need? That's not my responsibility. Forget it. What would it be? You got to stop this, Dwight. It's going to kill you. Would it be prayerlessness? Too busy in my life to carve a hunk of time alone with God. Every day. What would it be? Disobedience to what I know, what you know is divine truth. 
Would it be dishonesty? A lack of integrity? Fudging the reports? Cheating on a quiz? You know, it's just not a big deal, please. What would it be? Or would it be pride, self-worship, vanity, and ego-driven cockiness that corrupts everything we do? What is it? The fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, this list doesn't have to be exhaustive because already the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and you know what it is. You already know what it is. Just you and God, perhaps. But you know what Jesus says. Stop this. No more. Do not go on sinning. Now, Dwight, I mean, please. There's no hope for any of us then. Oh, oh, yes, there is. The healer is the one who shows up in Bethesda. I want to end with this quotation from Desire of Ages. You're going to need to fill in one word. Listen to this. Oh, my. Here's the gospel. Through the same faith as the healed man of Bethesda, we may receive spiritual healing by sin We've been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied of ourselves. We are no more capable of living a holy life than was the impotent man capable of walking. I can't be holy any more than he could walk. I can't do it. I can't, I can't, I can't in my own power. That's the point. There are many who realize their helplessness and who long for that spiritual life which will bring them into harmony with God. They are vainly striving to obtain it. In despair, they cry out the words of Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Let these desponding, struggling ones look up. Now, you see, I put a little one there. I wish you'd put a one in your quotation right now. I want to share with you here as we wrap Four steps. They're all embedded right here. Put a one right in the margin and then circle the words, look up. Number one, look up. That's the only place the impotent man could look. He's looking straight up into the face of Jesus. That means look into his face. Look up. Put a little one there. Look up. You want freedom. You want to be set free from what has held you, what has throttled your life. Step one, look up. Look into his face. The Savior is bending over. Keep reading. The Savior is bending over the purchase of His blood. He's saying with inexpressible tenderness and pity, Do you want to be made well? He bids you arise in health and peace. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole. Put a little two there, will you please? Believe in His Word. Believe His Word. Put a two there. Take Him at His Word. There is no command that Christ gives that He does not give the power to fulfill that command with. With his bidding comes his enabling. Put a two there. Believe him. Believe that he can enable you to be set free. Believe his word and it will be fulfilled. Put your will. Key word there. Fill that in, please. Put your will on the side of Christ. Put your choosing on the side of Christ. I choose Christ. And then would you put a three here? Here it is. Choose. Will. Choose to serve him. Put a little three by the margin. Right there. That's step three. Choose to serve him. I choose, Lord Jesus, to follow you. I choose to obey you. I choose by your grace. I choose to stay faithful to you. You've got to help me, Christ. I can no more walk than the impotent man could. I choose to obey you. 
are able. Choose to serve him. And in acting upon his word, there's the fourth step. Put it down, please. Little four, act upon his word. And in acting, I know it doesn't make sense. I know it looks bleak. Just step out. It isn't until you put your foot in the Jordan River that it parts. It won't part with you standing here saying, I can't find a victory over this besetting sin. I cannot find the victory, God, over this besetting sin. I cannot find the victory. Yes, you can. Put your foot in the water. The moment the foot goes in, that water will part. But God's not going to take that step for you. You have to take the step for yourself. You put your foot in. Then the miracle transforms your life. Wow. Number four, acting on his word. And look at, it, look at how quick. Just put a big, huge circle around this. You will receive strength. Step into the water. You will receive miracles. Whatever may be the evil practice. Now listen carefully to this. This is speaking to me. This is speaking to you. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion, which through long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. Hallelujah, what do you say? There is no master passion. Whatever is gripping you like a ball and chain today, you are not consigned for life to live in failure after failure after failure. He can set you free. He can set you free. Guys, we're living in the judgment. Jesus is soon to come. I can no longer laugh at that. I can no longer shrug it off and say, someday, manana. No, there is no manana. You have today. You have today. This campus has learned that there is no manana. You have today. You have today. Don't put off for tomorrow. What he's saying, please stop it, Dwight. Stop it. Don't go on with this. Give it up. Give it to me. Let me have it. I'll set you free. Just like that. Wow. He will impart life to the soul that's dead in trespasses. He will set free the captive that is held by weakness and misfortune and the chains of sin. End quote. That's it. He said, Oh, Dwight, come on, please. You can't be serious. No, I am. I'm serious. I'm dead serious right now. May I, may I run the four but in front of you one more time before we have the benediction? Here they are. Number one, focus on Jesus. Go to the Gospels every morning. Read one story every morning, seven days a week. Go to the Gospels. Look up into the face that's looking down at you. Look up into his face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Focus on Jesus in the Gospels. Number two, what is it? Believe his word. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jude 24 and 25. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. He can keep you from falling. He is able. You have to give him permission. Focus on the word. Focus on Christ. Believe his word. Number three, choose to serve him. Obey him. Just choose. I choose, Jesus. I choose. I don't know how we're going to get through this, but I choose to follow you. And finally, number four, act on his word. Act on his word. Ladies and gentlemen, do you think God intentionally made this as difficult as he could think of so that we could barely get into the kingdom and only a few at that? Are you crazy? He wants to save the human race. It's about the ball and chain on your ankle. He can't 
take it off unless you say you may take it off. You can't take it off. You've gone 38 years with that ball and chain. You can't do it. He can do it. They say, do I, you know what, what, what is this? Some kind of legalism? Some kind of perfectionism? Okay. Let me ask you. Was Jesus a legalist for saying to the man in the temple, stop doing what you're doing or it'll kill you? Was he a legalist for saying that to the man in the temple? Yes or no? Call it out to me. No, he was not a legalist. Was he a perfectionist for saying, stop sinning? Don't go on sinning any longer. Was he a perfectionist? No, he was not. You know what he was? He's a realist. And a realist is, if you keep doing that, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. I just healed you. But if you go back like a dog to his vomit, it'll kill you. Stay away from that. Stay away. He's being a realist. He's telling you the truth. What do you want him to do? Lie to you? Coddle you? Let you go through the judgment? Laughing at what he has hoped you would finally deal with? This is the hour of his judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is coming soon. It's time to cleanse the soul temple. Cleanse the records up there, fine. But please cleanse the heart in here. Cleanse me, oh God. I want nothing between you and me. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So the decision is yours. I know this is a strong message. But we ran into it getting to chapter 5. We should have skipped chapter 5. We ran into it. And now we have to do something. You'll never be the same again because of this teaching. If you say no to it, you now know what you're saying no to. You're saying no to your Savior, who is your judge. And if, and if he can't save you, he, the judge will make but one decision which you made for him. Forget it. Take the judge who is your Savior. Obey him. Don't go on doing this, please, any longer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As a boy, I used to hear my mother, beautiful contralto voice. My dad was a preacher, and he would often have mothers sing there in Japan as we would move from little church to little church. He would have mothers sing this old gospel hymn. So I grew up hearing this hymn, and I wish we would sing a stanza of it as well. It's the familiar one. You've heard it, haven't you? Nothing between my soul and my Savior, not of this world's delusive dream. It's 322 if you want to sing, read the first stanza. We'll put the words on the screen for you, though, so maybe you can just leave your hymnal closed and let's stand together and let's sing our commitment. This isn't an altar call. Now, nobody's coming forward. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. You've already made a decision in your heart or you're wrestling with that decision now, and I'm praying for that decision, that you make the decision Jesus is calling you today to make, a decision to declare to him by your grace, Lord Jesus, I want nothing between my soul and you my judge.